Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Greg Maidment of Carbon Management Canada. Carbon Management Canada is a not-for-profit that supports the advancement of technologies to reduce carbon emissions in large-scale industries. Today, one of our main focuses, they also run a field station to test and apply CCS best practices. Greg, thank you for joining me on the show today. I'm really excited to talk to you about, about your field station and really about CCS. Can you give the audience a little bit more on your background and maybe more introduction to Carbon Management Canada? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Joe. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, Carbon Management Canada, uh, CMC, we're, as you said, not-for-profit, trying to figure out the best practices for CCS, uh, carbon capture and sequestration. Um, my background is as a geophysicist and then uh, exploration um, in the oil and gas industry and, and transitioned into this space here. Thank you for that. Now, let's just dive right in. You just mentioned CCS, carbon capture and sequestration. Nowadays, we hear a lot of CCUS, which is carbon capture utilization and sequestration. I'm sure we all have heard these terms. If you haven't by now, you just did. But <laughs> because we know the acronyms, that doesn't mean that we actually know what it is. And I'm not sure I even know what it is. So let's spend some time talking through what CCUS actually is. And I think we should start out with what is the basic definition of CCUS. Yeah, you put it very succinctly. It's carbon capture, utilization, and storage, or sequestration. Sequestration meaning storage at the end of the day. Uh, carbon capture has been a exploding industry in the last few years, uh, understanding how we can actually capture CO2 or methane for that matter, both carbon-based chains. Uh, how do we capture that and, and, and use that capturing process to slow down our global warming and help us hit some of our, our Paris Climate Accord targets. Um, at the end of the day, there's a variety of different things we can do with that carbon. Is it is it captured off a flue stack with a bunch of other, for lack of a better term, crap coming out of there and we need to deal with separation? Um, can, we, can we capture that carbon or that CO2 directly from our tailpipes on our cars? I mean, that's starting to get a little ridiculous, but at the end of the day, that's what we're what's what we're trying to figure out here so the the couple things we can do with it utilization is a wide variety of different 
different technologies, different focuses. And that's everything from making carbon nanotubes to um, figuring out how to use pure carbon as fertilizer, et cetera. So how do we, how do we use that captured carbon? Uh, there's other ways that we can use it, such as in EOR, enhanced oil recovery, um, or or uh, in, in tailings ponds, um, et cetera, to, to, to clean up dirty waste products. At the end of the day, storage might be or is, uh, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the International Energy Agency, the, the easiest and safest solution for getting rid of carbon, whether it's methane or CO2. Um, storage means we find a safe um, contained reservoir in the subsurface and inject that CO2 underground for it to be permanently stored and, and contained in that space. There's over 26 large-scale CCS, carbon capture and sequestration projects up and running currently. Uh, Norway, Malaysia, Australia, couple in Canada, a few down in the States. Um, and, and there's over 50 planned in the next two years that we can see uh, publicly available and, and, and we're, we're up and running in this space. Thank you for, for that explanation. I did not realize there were 26 active projects and 50 planned carbon sequestration projects. Now, now obviously we're going to get to how to go through the, the sequestration process, but I think it's important to answer the question why because you you just stated storage is is what is is kind of that that golden goose that is where we need to be putting our eggs into that basket why is why is sequestration such a necessary part of say the energy transition and the future energy outlook yeah, that's a fantastic question. Yeah, you're right. When we look at any of the uh, carbon graphs trying to show our reduction in carbon output and, and CO2 output that the International Energy Agency puts out or any of our federal governments, um, there's always energy transition or hydrogen or um, optimization of our current energy systems. But at the end of the day, capture and sequestration is one of the only negative processes, meaning we're removing carbon from the system and we're taking it out of the full carbon cycle, right? We're taking it out of, out of the atmosphere and um, putting it somewhere where it's safely stored permanently. So if we're going to be net neutral, we need to be capturing what we're already admit, uh, emitting and, and sequestering that. And that process can be further developed so that we're capturing more CO2 than we're admitting. And that's the process that needs to be used to quote unquote, reverse climate change. That's the part where we can take uh, carbon out of the system and um, and really s stop the, the climate change that's happening uh, as we're speaking. Okay. So we need CCUS to to really start hitting those goals. If we're going to be using using anything that is carbon-based, any type of fossil fuel, we ultimately need to capture that carbon being produced and store it somewhere in a in a long-term almost dare i say geologic scale time scale storage location so as a geologist i like thinking about where we put all this stuff and would prefer as as you said 
putting this into the subsurface, into the ground, I I don't really know that much about about carbon sequestration though. So where where would we put this carbon? I guess where are we storing this in the ground and and securing it there for for the time being? Yeah, good question. Um, at the end of the day, it's the same general geology uh, that fosters oil and gas development. We need some sort of sedimentary basin. That's the easiest, simplest place to store it. Uh, a sandstone body that uh, otherwise for oil and gas production, we would drill and and complete to pull oil and gas out of is a very similar sort of reservoir, similar sort of rock that's very capable of storing CO2. Um, obviously, the biggest factors are, are permeability uh, and porosity. So the ability, porosity, the ability to actually store that CO2 and permeability is how easy it is to push it into the rock, to push it into the reservoir. And the higher both of those are, the more CO2 you get away, the easier it is to get in the ground. So in Canada, we've got two major basins, the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin and the Williston Basin. That Williston Basin moves right down into the U.S. as well. Um, and then there's quite a few basins down in, in Alabama and in Texas, the same, same uh, general idea. Where do we have stacked fluvial systems, stacked sand, um, stacked shore faces, et cetera, that we, can, that we can target to put it into? Now, there's some other um, trickier, trickier, more complicated projects uh, where people are trying to store it, like, like carb fix, where they're trying to store it into basalts um, and, and offshore into coarser rocks. Um, that's that's fantastic, and I, I applaud the innovation. I applaud the work. At, at the end of the day, we do have more than enough capacity, especially in North America, for for that onshore storage. Um, the beauty of all this is we're ultimately reusing very similar processes that we have great experience in for oil and gas production. Um, very similar infrastructure. We've already got pipes uh, moving to the locations where we could store it. We've already got wells drilled. Um, we've already got completions understood in all this space. So there's a lot of there's a lot of synergies between the oil and gas industry and and supporting the CCS process. Just out of curiosity, when we're talking about storage capacity, you just said we've got more than enough storage onshore in North America. Do you have any numbers on that? Like what is that actually what 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 do we need in terms of of capacity for? CO2 storage? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, I can only speak to the research that we've done in Canada. I can't, I can't speak to um, the US, uh, but at the end of the day, we need gigaton storage, right? We need to offset what our total emissions are at this point um, for, for gigaton storage. And, and again, we have a roadmap already in place that's been uh, funded by the federal provincial governments as well as uh, academia to, to map out all this space. Um, there's a combination of storage into saline aquifers, meaning salty wet uh, reservoirs, as well as old depleted oil and gas reservoirs. And, and the combination of both these spaces for, for CO2 storage is, is way more than enough uh, for, for Canada's requirements. Um, and I think we, d we were uh, also measuring a lot of the EU's requirements, and we have more than enough capabilities for that as well. Uh, can't speak to the U.S., but I'm assuming based on how much uh, oil and gas is coming out of Texas that there's more than enough capacity there as well. Yep, I would. I would also assume that. 
so so I just want to make sure we've got these numbers right. So you're saying the gigaton storage, the idea there is that all of the carbon that is being used in Canada, the uh, the idea is to be carbon neutral, you would be putting that same amount of carbon emissions into the ground. And that's where you're saying you have more than enough on this gigaton storage scale to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the end of the day, this is a transitional solution as well, right? We need to be able to uh, be supporting those those other energy transitions in the meantime to help us get there. But this is the immediate solution with immediate capabilities to do it, as I said now. <laughs> so at the end of the day, like we, we, if we wanted to pour the money into it, we could be carbon neutral within six months, kind of thing, right? We have this we have this capability with this process now. Um, can we do it and maintain our carbon output for the next hundred years? No, probably not. We'll probably fill up all of our pore space at the end of a hundred years. But if this is what we could do for the next 25, 50 years until we've uh, figured the, figured out the whole transition, whether that's putting the whole grid on nuclear or, or all driving hydrogen cars, that's probably not the solution. But as we move in that direction, um, we'll, we'll have less and less CCS requirements and we'll uh, we'll be able to transition away from from what we're currently doing. Okay. Thank you for that. That that really is a it's a a profound idea and it's an important point to make that we have the the capabilities for the carbon sequestration and the CCS but it is also a it's kind of a finite resource. There is only so much room in the ground and there's plenty of it right now but it is not going to be a permanent solution it is it is part of the transition and there may always be some amount of sequestration that we need to do and as long as we transition enough of the energy then we will always have some extra space for sequestration is is that fair to say yeah, that's a really succinct way of putting it. You're right. At the end of the day, there's going to be some emissions that are 100% unavoidable, no matter what, especially on the methane side of things. Um, so we're going to need some semblance of sequestration for the foreseeable future, for sure. Um, but y- yes, you're absolutely right. This is this is a good immediate solution. We can do it at quite large scales. We can we can meet all our needs today, but will we be able to do that in a hundred years? Probably not. Speaking of a hundred years into the future, one thing that I I am curious about, and I think would be helpful to explain, is how does the carbon stay underground? Because I think that is one of those big, big ideas, and and more of those fears that that we have whenever we're talking about the subsurface is things escaping that are supposed to stay down there and then getting to the surface this idea of a of a leaky aquifer so how do how does the carbon stay in the ground that's a really good question and that's always the first question um within the oil and gas industry we have a pretty good or i used to have a pretty good understanding of of what's containing um, the oil and gas underground and and it's the exact same processes as it would be for for co2 storage right so the primary thing is you have a cap rock uh, a rock that is the cap if you will on top of your reservoir uh, so that nothing can leak up above it so this would be a, a type of rock that's impermeable 
um, and, and very fine, fine particulates, something like a coal or a shale or a granite for that matter, something that would entirely block off the, the passage of, of uh, the CO2 particles. Um, combined with that would be um, some sort of capillary pressure. Now that means the, we force CO2 into the pores and the pressure that held that CO2 in the pores won't let it release. And you can think of it very similar to the uh, meniscus on the top of your, of your drink. You know, you fill up your cup uh, all the way to the top and you can always see the little bit of water that's a little higher than the cup, but it won't spill over the edge. And it's a very similar process, uh, capillary pressure. So that holds your CO2, that holds your oil and gas into place. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, we would see oil and gas and other, other water leaking to the surface continuously if these processes didn't work. Um, so there, we, we know this is a safe and effective storage um, process because we don't have, I don't have oil and gas leaking up, uh, leaking up in my backyard, even though I know that there's oil and gas production um, just a couple kilometers from my house. So that's like, that gives me a decent amount of confidence. Uh, on top of that, uh, to, for further safety, this CO2, if we do it into a saline aquifer, if we do it into a non-potable, non-drinkable, salty reservoir, uh, will eventually dissolve into the water. So that's sort of a 20 to 30 year process of the CO2 dissolving into the water, making fizzy, bubbly water. And then an additional sort of 40 to 60 years, so we're talking about a full 100 year cycle here, that the CO2 after it's dissolved into the water, the carbon itself will precipitate out, will we'll get solid chunks of carbon falling out. And, and so that's why this CCS is a permanent safe solution. We end up with pure carbon and salty water at the end of the day. That is a, it's a fun way to think about it. You're just creating carbonated water, carbonated salt water. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It doesn't sound like it's fun to drink, but <laughs> but it's well, a fun process. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, it's nice to use a, a resource that we otherwise won't need or access at this day and age. We're not going to drill and pull up this undrinkable salty water or put it on our field. So it's it's nice to be able to use it. The, the salt itself uh, within it helps with the absorption of CO2 um, in, into the water. Actually, you can add other crappy materials to it as well, like hydrogen sulfide, uh, which again, speeds up that dissolution even faster. Um, so it's, it's nice to be reusing or not reusing. It's nice to be using uh, resources that otherwise wouldn't be touched and are, are, and are a little dangerous to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's another really good point about, about the sequestration process is that you can also put in things like H2S that, that for people who haven't worked in the field, if you've ever gone to Yellowstone, you've you've probably smelled some sulfur <laughs> and that that rotten egg smell. And in in fairly small quantities, it's it's quite nasty and quite dangerous. So this is cool that that you can also take those dangerous compounds, more dangerous, depending on who you talk to than CO2. And you can also sequester that and actually make it work faster. Yeah, absolutely. We've got lots of experience in North America 
already storing sour gas, already storing H2S underground safely and effectively. And, and the fact that we can just do that hand in hand with uh, CO2 is, it's exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're using learnings from the last 70 years to improve our situation today. Yeah, yeah. So the, the next question that I've got, and we haven't really talked about the utilization side of CCUS, and I know that's not, that's not what the, the field site is focused on, and that's not necessarily what, what, the, what we're talking about today. But I'm curious, can you give some examples of what utilization is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest, for, for better or worse, the biggest is enhanced oil recovery, EOR. So that means we take CO2, you pump the CO2 down into a reservoir that's already producing oil and gas. Um, that pressure buildup, because you are uh, injecting the CO2, forces more oil out of adjacent wells and forces more oil, more oil up out of the ground. So, I mean, the automatic response is, well, what the hell, we're, we're producing more oil. This isn't something we want to do. But at the end of the day, that means we're drilling less wells. This is called uh, secondary recovery, uh, EOR. Um, we're drilling less wells. We're completing less wells to produce oil that we still need today. Um, until we can get off the, uh, off the oil chain, we, we still need some to help this transition. And if we can do it with a less intensive uh, carbon footprint, as well as a less intensive environmental footprint, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, and then on top of that, the, the CO2 itself um, dissolves and absorbs into the oil that's in that reservoir. Um, like we just talked about with the saline aquifers, the same process occurs. And there's a lot of really good calculations and Alberta's got a really good uh, tier carbon credit system to calculate what CO2 stays in the ground versus what comes out. So we're still putting more CO2 into the ground than we get out the other side. Um, that CO2 dissolves into, um, into as I said, the, the, the oil that's already there, or the gas that's already there, um, into the bound oil and gas. That's oil or gas that wouldn't uh, have been produced because it's stuck to the side of, of the other rocks that are down below. Um, and, and so it stays stored. And then, at, so at the end of the day of what's put in about 15 to 20% stays there. Uh, and, and then the rest is captured and recycled out. So that's the, that's the first, that's the biggest utilization component. Um, there is some other utilization, as I, as I mentioned, the carbon nanotubes, um, or, um, I'm trying to think, sorry, other brain fart here, Joe. <laughs> um, the Did utilizing, earlier, sorry, go ahead. You mentioned earlier, uh, mining tailings. Yes. There we go. Thank you. That's where I was trying to go. Um, we're left with mining tailings at the end of any sort of excavation process. That's a really dirty, crappy set of effluents that comes off of comes off of any mining process and and being able to reuse some of those crappy um, tailings for for co2 storage is is pretty exciting so that's having the co2 itself actually combine with with some of the tailings so that it's pulled out of the air um, and and into this permanent solid solution again same as the sequestration side of things as it binds with some of these tailings we get a permanent carbon um, off 
offing. That's not the word I'm looking for, but pure, pure permanent carbon um, solution where we end up with chunks of carbon falling off within these tailing ponds uh, to, to have a, a clean storage for, for this CO2. So let me just make sure I understood what you said. This is this is from the tailings. There is almost a a direct air capture component to this chemical process that is ultimately sequestering carbon. Or am I did I misunderstand? Nope, that's a way better way of putting it. Thank you. That's exactly correct. Now there is some additional additives and a little extra work that needs to go into it, but you are correct. At the end of the day, this is a easy air direct air capture solution for for co2 that is it's really really cool very exciting i think it is a as you point out it is it's kind of the idea of of making lemonade out of lemons the tailings are are a waste stream that that we don't really want we don't want to do anything with it we just want to to bury it and make it safer, but being able to do this, this, um, this direct air capture, which is a, a very important process with something that is otherwise trash is, is really cool. And I think this, this idea of, of utilization, it kind of goes in with, with the, with the three R's of, of, um, of recycling. So you've got the recycling, reuse and restore the reuse aspect of secondary recovery of oil and the reuse aspect that that we talk about at PetroLearn very often of converting oil and gas wells to geothermal is is very very important because it ultimately saves saves on drilling and extends that life cycle for these wells and for these fields and that aspect of just extending the life cycle also contributes to lowering their their total carbon footprint yeah absolutely and at the end of the day we're expediting the process because the wells are already there that you're reusing and and if we're dealing with liabilities or want to worry about uh, abandoned wells this is we've put it into the hands of somebody who wants to treat it appropriately and wants to monitor these wells so that we're not dealing with larger liability issues of these abandoned wells so I, everything about that reuse is is fantastic the only thing i'd like to add with that utilization is at the end of the day it's important and it's great to um, use all this good science to to better humanity um, but it is a it is a smaller amount of CO two that is stored. Like I said, it's only about fifteen percent of what's put in for an EOR well. The direct air capture side of things for the for the tailing ponds um, r- requires a decent amount of of CO two moving over it to make a, a large scale scheme, uh, large scale change. So it's it's part of the solution, um, but they're but they're not the be all end all. Thank you for that that point and that making sure everybody understands that. I am curious about, a lot of people talk about, or I guess when you go and buy carbon credits, some of the options are planting trees or investing in, we had a, 
We had a group on earlier in the podcast talking about regenerative agriculture. Where does where do those processes fit into the carbon capture, utilization, and storage realm? Yeah, I, I, I love these nature-based solutions. I love the innovation uh, going into this space. I love the science um, that we're interacting with these farmers with. To how do we improve our our soil sequestration? That's that's the more carbon we can get into our soil, the richer our uh, our return is and our, our corn is and our wheat is, et cetera, et cetera. And I love that that's all coming together. Um, a few things we need to th- keep into perspective when we talk about these nature-based solutions, though, is, yeah, we go plant trees. There's We need trees. This is super important. And, and they do store and absorb a whole bunch of CO2. Um, but it is not a closed loop. So at the end of the day, uh, the tree dies or the tree burns like we've seen a lot in Western uh, United States and Western Canada the last few years. And all that CO2 is immediately released back into the atmosphere, even as it's decomposing at the end of its life cycle. So this is a sort of a push, push the, push the solution to the next generation kind of idea. Now, again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. The more trees we have, the, the longer our time frame is to come up with a, larger scale solution and and it's important um but at the end of the day we need to acknowledge that that those trees are going to die we need to acknowledge that even though we're doing for example no-till farming uh, eventually the co2 leaks out of the soil eventually the next farmer is going to come and till the soil and all that co2 is released so it is a good in-term solution but it's not the the hundred year solution if that makes sense yep yep that definitely makes sense and i think that's a another one of those good ideas and and aspects of of really the the carbon management side of of the energy our current energy intake and, and use in society is that we are looking at we're looking at not necessarily what is going to sustain us for five years things like carbon sequestration is how do we actually start reducing our total carbon and and get to that that 500 1000 year solution that that we can we can make that transition into a new energy world and the the ideas of of the way you put it we're kind of kicking the can down the road with these nature based solutions i think it it it's one of those things where we can be a where we can we can become almost carbon neutral but as you said carbon negative is really what is necessary to get us back to the climate goals that we have i mean at at the end of the day if we go plant 100 billion trees and we get that much extra co2 out of the air for the next 60 years until those trees die but that that next 60 years is enough time for us to advance our direct air capture for for carbon capture then then it was all worthwhile right then it was all a good solution it's given us enough time to come up with the solution for that negative capture process Hmm. that's a really good point yeah i think that's a it's a great way to look at it 
Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. Um, we're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair, November 10th to 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, through ninth once again with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels uh for this information and everything else just follow us on social check us out on linkedin uh, twitter facebook and if you go to linkedin go ahead and join the OGGN street team i'll see you again next month we've kind of talked about carbon sequestration and the whole the whole process, the whole idea and the whole reason for carbon sequestration is to improve our, our quality of life, make life safer by reducing our carbon footprints, uh, sequestering the carbon we have in the atmosphere. But how do we, how do we actually know what we're doing? I guess the, the roundabout question is, how do we know the CO2 is staying in the ground? How do we actually monitor what we've done by pumping CO2 into the subsurface? Now you're into the exciting stuff. Now you're into the stuff I'm really, uh, I'm really excited about. So that, that is our whole purpose. How do you, if we're going to give out carbon credits, how do you make sure that the CO2 is there forever um, and I'm not using my tax dollars to hand out to industry to, to, for CO2 that's going to leak out. Or at the end of the day, I'm saying I'm sequestering CO2 and it's just coming out of the ground somewhere else. Um, and and this is there's a lot of really fun MMV research, measurement monitoring and verification research going on right now. Uh, a lot of this is in geophysical space. Um, we're, we're predominantly geophysicists at Carbon Management Canada, but... Also, a lot of reservoir engineering requirement, uh, temperature measurement changes, and, and geological changes as well. So at the end of the day, we need to come up with an effective, cheap, repeatable way of, of seeing where the CO2 is underground and to make sure it's staying there. Um, at our site, we're, we're testing, so we're injecting CO2 into the ground and we have two observation wells uh, right on either side of the injection well, just 20 and 30 meters apart. Uh, what is that, 90 feet, 60 feet, 90 feet apart? Um, so that we can see where the CO2 uh, and how fast the CO2 is moving from that injection well to those observation wells. And then we've layered on top of it an overkill of technologies to, to monitor because we want to, at the end of the day, at the end of our life of our projects say look this is the cheapest easiest way to see co2 lots of these processes are very similar to what we've done in oil and gas uh, looking for oil and gas pools and fields um, a simple way of, of of looking at our co2 currently is called surface seismic so we put a bunch of sensors on the surface bang the surface with an energy source of some kind uh, whether honestly in, in field school for, for university, we did it with a sledgehammer. Those energy sound waves move down through the subsurface, bounce off the CO2, bounce off the rocks around them, and then come back to surface and, and vibrate our geophones, vibrate those sensors I was referring to. And we can make a really, truly comprehensive three-dimensional picture of, of what the subsurface looks like. And this is what we do to find 
channels in the subsurface or shore face sands for oil and gas production. And, and we're doing a very similar thing for the CO2 storage. Now, as we add CO2 into the system, that, that gas has a different signal, a different amount of energy is reflected off it so we can see where it's moving. So that's, that's one really good way of doing it. And, and, and we also need to be able to effectively say that nothing's leaking out other wells that are poked into the reservoir. So there needs to be some sort of em emission monitoring that goes in hand in hand with this whole process. Um, we've got one of only uh, two dual comb mass spectrometers in partnership with the uh, University of Colorado. Um, it basically measures all emissions passing through it, passing up through the atmosphere. It's a full a full wavelength uh, measuring technique, that won the Nobel Prize in uh, 96, I think, 1996 in physics, um, to, to, to measure basically all emissions. So the, there needs to be this, this process um, to, to, to monitor and verify that the CO2 is where it's supposed to be. And we have these capabilities now. Um, it's just a matter of time. How do we make this more effective? How do we make this cheaper? And how do we say what concentration of CO2 is moving where so we can we can predict um, in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years time where it's where it's going to move before it starts to, as we talked about earlier, dissolve into the water and ev eventually precipitate out that that pure carbon. Um, there's lots of questions in that space into how do we effectively do it, um, but also how do we start to do it at scale? We talked about gigaton storage earlier. If we're putting in that much CO2, our plume, our, our volume of CO2 is going to be moving away from that injection well for, for kilometers, for miles. Um, mm -hmm. How do we effectively monitor the edge of that plume if we're two kilometers, three, four, five kilometers away from where we initially were? So there's there's some really good work done with a company called Geospace and the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs uh, in the U.S. there um, on passive monitoring. So putting out sensors that record uh, continuously all the time and and trying to use that with machine learning and AI to help predict where where those CO2 plumes are moving as, as and, and where they're going to be. Was a, that was a lot to say that there's a lot of great research going on in this space. Um, we've, we've already got great capabilities, but how do we truly make this effective and cheaper? Yes. Yeah, that is, it always seems like that is the recurring theme is that the goal is making things more effective while also being cheaper. And I was actually going to ask about passive monitoring techniques, because to me, the idea of as we are as we are re-injecting or I guess injecting for the first time some of the CO2 into the ground, you would you would see a a pressure increase. You would see, as as you pointed out, the plume should start moving somewhere up to kilometers away from the from the injection site and all of that should should create some type of signal and i guess that's the goal is to find the the cheapest easiest way to see that signal so that you can quantify where and how much co2 is is staying staying put yep absolutely um that that pressure front itself uh, at the edge of the plume, as it's pushed out, should make a should be enough of a signal to record. Um, 
but it's truly understanding what sort of array, what sort of sensors are needed to, to measure that. Uh, actually, we've had some phenomenal luck with, with fiber optics. It's not luck. It's a lot of hard work and diligence and a, and a boatload of researchers. So let me take that back. We've had and great results. Data. <laughs> we've had great results with fiber optics because of that, right? Fiber optics uh, are a complicated uh, set of um mathematical and, and laser-based recordings, but at the end of the day, it's an analog change. Um, fiber optics for measuring is, is the change in the length on the, on the fiber itself uh, because of temperature, because of pressure, because of acoustic changes, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, it's a really good tool currently um, for, for monitoring that, that front of the CO2 plume. Now, figuring out how effective it is when we get kilometers out from the injection well is a whole different problem but uh, in the meantime it's pretty exciting and i think with fiber optics since you bring it up that is something that that we work on at petrolearn a little bit and i think there's there's two major major questions with that is the the amount of data that gets produced and then also the cost of installing fiber optics. So I'm curious from your perspective, if you can comment on it, where, where are the, the cost savings to make fiber optics something that is kind of standard for future wells? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess the limitations for fiber optics that I see in this space is you need to have an observation well to run those fiber optics down. Um, fiber optics on the surface, uh, we haven't quite figured out, and there's only so much fiber we can lay out. Um, once we get kilometers, as we said, away from the injection well, the real realism of, of having kilometers of fiber optics laying on the surface just doesn't make sense. That being said, currently, if you've got an observation well, it's a phenomenal tool to have. And I, I would argue that even though there's some cost associated with installing it, your information returns on it are quite high and it's, and it's well worth it. So we, we use our fiber optics for a VSP. That's a vertical seismic profile. So if we hit the ground on the surface, we can see all the energy uh, reflected down along that fiber. Uh, down the wellbore. So we get a really good image of what the rock looks like adjacent to the wellbore. Um, like you said, there's lots of information because it's constantly recording, but that talks about, or sorry, that speaks to, to wellbore integrity. Um, we can see if there's any leaks, if there's any um, corrosion because it's constantly monitoring. Uh, we can use it for temperature changes. We can extract the temperature component to, to see if there's any flow or, or changes in, um, or leaks for that matter, from, from the lower injected zones up into upper zones. Uh, we can extract the strain changes. So how much of each layer of rock is changing uh, as we're injecting CO2. So I, I would argue that the value of information using fiber in an observation well is quite high. Thank you. Yeah, I, it definitely sounds like it's a it's almost one of those necessary technologies in that it enables so much of the process. It is, it does seem like there's, there are those challenges of, of justifying the cost and then also figuring out what to do with all the data that, 
I think right now for for other processes like oil and gas and geothermal, I think those are those two questions end up being being prohibitors and stopping people from investing in the fiber optic lines. But it almost sounds like really if if we're going to go there, I think for carbon sequestration, an observation well with fiber optic is almost should almost be mandatory for for getting approval to have a carbon sequestration project yeah i i or or some equivalent um i don't want to limit it to just fiber just because we do have such a wide variety of different technologies we're playing around with but you're you're absolutely right and having a regulation that dictates what sort of mmv measuring monitoring verification requirements are in place for for geothermal for hydrogen for ccs is is super important well i think i think it's it's pretty clear that there are lots of lots of opportunities for data collection and and as far as understanding the subsurface it is it is pretty well known once you before you start injecting the co2 to really understand what reservoir you're injecting into I am curious with with everything, all the information that's there. What are the, I guess the, the biggest issues when it comes to sequestration right now? Those really the the questions that you guys are trying to answer with the research happening at at CMC. That's that's a great point. Uh, good, good, good question. Um, at the end of the day, we need to understand the interaction of that CO2 in the reservoir, in the rock. Uh, we need to understand what's happening down there to make sure we're not causing uh, any extra fractures, to make sure we're not causing any other um, damage to the reservoir ourselves, itself. Because at the end of the day, we've put all this money into drilling a well and building the surface infrastructure. We want to make sure we're not wrecking the wellbore. We're not uh, wrecking the reservoir that we're trying to access. And that's really part of the problem around injecting CO2 into depleted oil and gas reservoirs. Uh, we've created a, a, a vacuum by pulling all the oil and gas out of a reservoir. Um, and now we're trying to inject CO2 back into it. And that, that process uh, causes what we call uh, Joule Thompson cooling. And that's the process that keeps your refrigerator cold. Uh, we've got a liquid based compressed fluid that we inject into something um, uh, that then has a, a pressure drop, lower pressure. And that expansion of the CO2 causes a cooling effect and, and create, can create ice crystals or what we call hydrates. Uh, that would wreck your reservoir, wreck your porosity. And that's, like I said, that's the process that keeps your fridge cool. We're running uh, Freon through, or it used to be Freon through your uh, fridge. And as it has a pre pressure drop, it that cools off your fridge itself. So understanding um, those, those uh, cooling effects is very important because as I mentioned earlier, we've got all that depleted oil and gas reservoirs that already have well bores in it. Uh, we want to be able to reuse that. And especially when we start talking about um, the North Sea or any of the bigger offshore stuff. We've got this huge infrastructure there. Can we make sure we're using it? Uh, the EU has a Act 3 research project going on right now 
um, we're taking part in, uh, helping support them um, for, for just that purpose, understanding that, understanding what's going to happen when we inject CO2 into those depleted reservoirs. So that's a, that's a big focus of what we're doing. Um, but then on top of that, uh, something I didn't really address earlier when we talked about how do we know the CO2 is not going to leak out of the reservoir is really truly imaging the reservoir before we inject that CO2. Uh, how do we build an appropriate reservoir model, engineering model? How do we do the appropriate geological mapping, geophysical mapping, so that we know this is a safe contained reservoir that doesn't have faults and fractures all the way through it? And again, back to the initial question of how do we do this more effectively and cheaper um, so that we can expedite some of these projects, get them moving forward faster. Yeah, that's a really good point that you you really do want to know what the reservoir is and and really have a good understanding before if it's a if it's a virgin reservoir before you start poking holes through it you really need to know what what you've got or as close to what you've got as possible so the this is a kind of a a hard question to quantify. I, I'm curious, what are the, I guess, what is the value of carbon sequestration? I know it, it's going to vary from from region to region, but and and really, it is it is more of an intrinsic value. But is there a current monetary value being placed on sequestered carbon? Yeah, good question. Um, that's part of the reason that EOR, Enhanced Oil Recovery, is for better or for worse, leading the way in sequestration is because you put CO2 into the ground, you get oil out, it pays for itself, right? Um, mm. That being said, uh, the US has the 45Q. Um, for every ton of sequestered CO2, I think you get $30. Uh, so there is a, in, there is a, dollar value for injecting co2 underground uh in canada canada it's not the incentivization it's the taxation side of things so there is definitely a um a net benefit to co2 at the end of the day if you are a major emitter if you emit over a hundred thousand tons of co2 per year um, you're required to pay a set tax on each subsequent ton of co2 um, and and so sequestering CO2 to offset those outputs uh, it saves you quite a bit of tax dollars. Now, at the end of the day, I think it's at, sorry, don't quote me, but I think it's $40 per ton right now. Um, but by 2035, uh, Canada has it up to $170 per ton. So getting that system in place now is going to save you a lot of money down the road. Um, then, and that carbon tax at the end of the day is being used all over the EU, Great Britain, uh, Scandinavia, so that that process is 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 moving forward, and that's that's going to be imperative at the end of the day. Yep. Yeah, the carbon tax I think is the is the the obvious way of of putting a monetary value on the carbon that you're sequestering, and it as as you point out, the forty five Q tax credit in the U S. is is kind of that that same same incentive at this point. So now let's get back to Carbon Management Canada. We've kind of talked around the 
around the field site and a lot of the different technologies and techniques and, and, and stuff that you guys are working on, how would you say that, that you fit into the carbon sequestration sector in a more of a large picture? It's that's a complicated question and also a really fun question and something that we're we're constantly grappling with. But I is is really exciting. This space is brand spanking new, right? There's there is no real carbon sequestration sector uh, other than enhanced oil recovery, which has existed for a while. Is this the space hasn't really existed, and and we are a not for profit, so we're trying to be that space for collaboration we're trying to be that space to give out the answers to make sure we can expedite these projects so we're day-to-day doing co2 sequestration in a nice little facility in newell county uh, brooks alberta um, with the support of the the uh, landowners in that space to help understand how co2 is is um, effective and how we can do it better and at the same time answer all the questions that we've we've been talking about how do we make sure we're monitoring effectively how do we just straight inject it at a variety of different temperatures uh, it goes from minus 40 in the winter to plus 40 in the summer in newell county there so there's a lot of a lot of questions we need to understand just about surface facilities and and, and we want to make sure that when Shell comes to ask us a question or ConocoPhillips comes to ask us a question, we can immediately help them um, on, on surface facilities, on how to support uh, CO2 injection underground, how to monitor it effectively so that we can expedite these projects. So we're, we're supporting new tech development. Um, we're supporting the monitoring research. We're supporting academia, giving quite a bit of space and data and, and time to uh, academia from all over the world, from Australia, Malaysia, um, Oxford, uh, down in the states, every, everywhere, so that people can start modeling and start understanding this this space. And then, um, on top of that, we're trying to support pilot projects to just get them off the ground, add some of our um, credibility, I guess I'd like to say, to to help support these projects and get them get them moving. Um, at the end of the day, we need a catalyst for all these projects, and we're trying to be that catalyst. Um, we, for, we forget that CO2 sequestration is, is needed for a variety of other topics, not just straight sequestration. We need it for hydrogen. And if, if hydrogen's an intern step or a step for long haul trucking, um, we need, we need CCS, um, as part of the blue hydrogen roadmap to make sure we're, we're getting pure, clean hydrogen to, to burn at the end of the day. So helping some of these hydrogen projects, helping some of the oil companies, helping some of the major cement emitters uh, figure out how to best offset and, and understand their projects is, is really what we're trying to do. I think that's a great, great explanation and very, very clear that you guys are, are helping. You guys are, are making and trying to facilitate and enable the carbon sequestration space to to become a another another aspect to all of these energy industries and what they're producing how they can offset their carbon you mentioned blue hydrogen i'm curious are there any are there any uh, favorite projects that that you guys have done you've been around for I think almost a little more than 10 years now. So what, what are some favorite projects that, 
that have occurred at the CMC? It's it's very exciting seeing ideas that we spitballed around a decade ago in terms of hydrogen finally coming to fruition. So the original hydrogen roadmap for Canada was built out by our director, uh, Dr. Don Lawton and Steve Lazelle um, in, uh, in Alberta here. Um, and, and these were just highfalutin ideas a decade ago. And now all of a sudden there's people bringing in steam methane reformers with carbon capture units so that you can make blue hydrogen. Uh, blue hydrogen meaning hydrogen developed with no carbon footprint at the end of the day. It's really, truly exciting to see some of that. Um, that's that's the large scale stuff. Honestly, the stuff that I'm finding the most exciting is these really cool one-off tiny projects and research experiments that we've been doing at the facility research station. Um, the latest one was in partnership with uh, IRNS in Quebec. Uh, we pounded some 14-foot copper poles in the ground a kilometer apart and then run a current through them and uh, put a probe down one of our observation wells and, and measure how much current is, is moving in at 300 meters depth, at 500 meters depth, how much current's moving between those two probes that we jammed into the ground. And uh, little random one-off ideas for resistivity mapping like that are quite important because at the end of the day, we redo that same survey multiple times and it gives us an excellent idea of how much the CO2 is progressing through the subsurface um, the current the, doesn't want to move through CO2. There's a high resistivity uh, as you hit more CO2. So we can use that change in current between the two, the two probes to map where the CO2 is going. So I'm really liking these, these one-off projects. Um, having some innovators come with new energy sources. Uh, somebody come and test a, an energy source for, for surface seismic that was basically like a 50 cal gut. Uh, drill a little <laughs> hole, put the put the pistol down, and let her blow. It was awesome, and and ran around the whole facility, testing that as an energy source. That's so. It's it's really those little one off things that you can see, have a tangible use, um, that 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 are really getting me excited. That sounds. It does sound like fun running around the facility, just literally shooting a gun <laughs> into the ground. <laughs> Absolutely. So where where is the future of CCUS? It's we're seeing good pickup worldwide through all the major emitters and um, governments, and uh, COP twenty six is going on right now with very similar conversations. It's it's one of the biggest, easiest, quickest solutions uh, to help with our carbon footprint. So there's great uptake there. The future really needs to be that carbon capture from the directly from the air. So that we call that DAC, direct air capture. Um, pulling the CO2 out of the air so that we can remove some of the greenhouse gases. We can remove some of those um, warming effects from our atmosphere. Uh, currently, all these CCS projects we've been talking about, very few of them um, have that direct air capture component. They're either pulling the carbon dioxide off of flue gas or directly pumping the flue gas underground. Uh, so we need to be able to pull CO2 at a huge scale out of the atmosphere. And there's some great projects going on uh, with Svante um, and other companies out of Squamish, BC, um, 
pretty sure you saw that those announcements in Norway that has been supported by um, offsetting some of um, uh, Microsoft's uh, carbon footprint, um, a super major capture system there. So that's that's really the future. That's where we need to go is pulling the CO2 rate from the atmosphere. Are those, do you guys test any direct air capture equipment at your field site? Um, we've supported some like bench scale uh, development. So the, the smaller technologies um, and, and been a, as I said earlier, a collaborator to make sure people who are testing out all these different uh, capture technologies, whether it's membrane, whether it's um, amine capture, um, are talking to the right people. But at the end of the day, no, we haven't physically done it on site, though I'm very interested to do it if we can put a DAC system there uh, to then be injecting that CO2 underground. That would be really exciting. Very cool. Very cool. So now I, I think, before before the final questions, is there anything else that you wanted to say about CCS, CCUS, or or CMC before we jump into the final questions? I just really like to reiterate that this is a new space that requires innovation and it requires um, the input of a variety of different technologies and people. And this is one of those solutions that is going to come from uh, integration of oil and gas activities with with new research methodology methodologies sorry and we're going to need to 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 come together in this space and that's really what cmc is trying to do is to be that center of excellence for people to come and say hey i've got this new technology to test or i've got this new idea have you already seen this and as a not-for-profit we want to make sure people have access to those answers, or at least can be put in touch with the people who do have answers in that, in that space. And this solution is only going to be expedited by more people engaging together. It's not going to work very effectively if we we all go off into our silos and, and assume we have the best solution because we don't, and we don't have time for that either. I like it. I completely agree. And I think that's a, a great a great way to jump into our final questions with the idea of of collaborating and sharing knowledge and being able to really jumpstart the carbon sequestration space. So with that, I've got some final questions. The first one, what's the most important book you've ever read? <laughs> for entertainment or for education? <laughs> However you interpret the question. I love it. Uh, the most important book I've read uh, is, is this is different than my favorite. Let's, let's see. Uh, there is a book called The Runner uh, written by Cynthia Voice, Voigt that was transformative in my youth. Taught me how to deal with stress, et cetera. Um, I, I got to say, though, my, my favorite book, my most important book has to be Ender's Game. Um, I probably reread that every year. It's it's really uh, a good assessment of of our military complex it's a really good assessment on on how we grow up it's a really uh, good way to look at innovative problem solving i i, I love ender's game it's too bad the movie wasn't better <laughs> i have not seen the movie and funny story about ender's game my wife's 
sister has been telling her to read it for the past five years, I would say. And she finally did read it. And, and she, I'm pretty sure it is top five of she's, she's on book 21 for the year. I think Ender's game is top five in terms of entertainment category. And also kind of in that sci-fi realm, but she won't admit it, (laughs) but it's, it is clear that it is. Yeah. So the, the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? That's a, that's a tricky one. I think that's when we've decided as a humanity that this is priority number one. And I, I, I don't know when we get to that point. I hope it's sooner rather than later. Um, but we're not going to take those steps until, until it's forced upon us, right? Um, we have the capabilities to do it today just with CCS alone, let alone, let alone the rest of the innovation that's happening in this space. Um, so, so I'd like to say sooner rather, sooner rather than later, but I, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be when, when we're, when our hand is forced, I think. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's a, a good way to look at it and, and an interesting perspective that it really is. It is not one of those things that we're, we're going to prioritize until we do, because it is not a, you, you have to create new spaces and you have to create really the carbon sequestration sector. The whole thing needs to be developed before this is really going to become a a strong a strong push towards net zero. We're starting from scratch. It's it's difficult to get people on board and explain a really complicated science and a really complicated uh, process to to really get everybody on board. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So the last question is: Do you have a question for me? Yeah. So how does uh, how does geothermal fit into the space? How does your expertise fit into um, fit into these these carbon reducing solutions and and fit in with CCS? How can we collaborate in the spirit of my earlier discussion? <laughs> yeah. So geothermal, I would say, is is one of the the best renewable energies. It is baseload, so it is firm. It is also flexible, which means we can ramp up and ramp down depending on the electricity load. And it, as we develop new technologies and new ideas, we can, we can expand from just the ring of fire into the idea of geothermal anywhere, meaning depending on the idea, we can produce geothermal energy anywhere. And really, we already have that in terms of direct heating and cooling in ground source heat pumps or geothermal heat pumps. But I see geothermal as being that that foundation for the the energy grid. And another aspect to geothermal and where geothermal fits in with carbon sequestration, we're also producing a one, lots of fluids. So an average well is on the order of of twenty to fifty thousand barrels per day. So that's a lot of of production 
And ultimately, a lot of that gets reinjected. So the idea of how to make big wells and how to how to move lots of fluid and lots of material, I think, is something that that the geothermal industry knows knows pretty well. And as we as we develop these ideas, something that one of our specialties at PetroLearn is is geomechanics. So we we work on these highly complicated thermo hydro mechanical multi physics three dimensional and really four dimensional into the time domain models where we are looking at the the evolution of the subsurface all dependent on what we're either putting in or pulling out and where we're doing that and the temperatures we're doing that at and the rates we're doing that at so really i think the and and the last part about geothermal is that because we are that that clean baseload renewable energy i think geothermal is one of the one of the obvious scenarios of how you how you develop and how you produce blue hydrogen and green hydrogen and and how you can provide that green electricity for for all of the other things that in order to make a green economy, we need that green electricity. And I think geothermal is is really the the foundation for that. I you know what I really like as you're as you're talking through that, it automatically gives me ideas around, well, how do you use fiber optics for monitoring your temperature changes? How do, how can you use geophysics for mapping out your your drilling targets and your reservoir needs, et cetera? So I'm I'm always excited to hear what other people are passionate about. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Greg, thank you for, for joining me on this episode. It's been a lot of fun. And if, if people are curious about Carbon Management Canada, I will include a link in the show notes. And I guess, is there anything else you wanted to say? Not at all. I'm uh, well, yes. As a not-for-profit, I'm here to answer questions. We've, we've got our website. Please, uh, Please send any questions, comments, hopes, dreams, whatever you got. Um, we're trying to we're trying to expedite projects in the space. So if you need help, let me let me know. If you've just got a general question, let me know. That's what I work on. All right, Greg. Thank you very much, and thank you to everybody for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor: give me a five star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit us at OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, check out the Canon co-working space. I enjoy working there when I'm in Houston, and it's where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you mention OGGN when you go, you can get a free day pass and then you can see all the great stuff I'm talking about. Until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.